Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy Guest Lecture Series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about his experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we bring you a performer who would have given James Brown a run for his money as the hardest-working man in showbiz, the incomparable Cedric the Entertainer. I decided not to be famous and do a famous thing. I just went in and auditioned, and I got the role for that reason. But I felt like that attitude led me to being creative in the moment, you know, taking the character and doing a little something different. In my day, Barbara was a counselor, fashion expert, style coach, pimp, just general all-around hustler. Hey, since Tiger Woods won a couple of years ago, we out there trying to play, boy. I'm out there. It'd be a lot of black people at the golf course now. I call it the, the post-Tiger renaissance. <gasps> a dandelion. I thought the frost wiped them all out. All but one. This is the barber shop. The place where a black man means something. Cornerstone neighborhood. His film and TV credits, they're only about 20 years old, and yet during that time, he's racked up over 70 credits. Everything from barbershop to playing a lemur in Madagascar. He helped create the show Soul Man, and he is currently executive producing and starring in the CBS show Neighborhood. It's all a pretty far climb up from the St. Louis stand-up scene where he began. I'm from St. Louis. I started in St. Louis as a stand-up, and of course, uh, during that time, that was really how most of us guys came into television and film. You started by being a stand-up. If you weren't a, you know, a dedicated, straight-up actor, and you know, most of the people from Jamie Foxx to the Wayans Brothers, uh, Martin Lawrence, all these guys were stand-ups first, and then they became TV stars and film stars. Eddie Murphy, you know, so. Um, so that was, you know, something that I really wanted to do. So I started in St. Louis doing stand-up, and, and then I came out to L.A. in 94 when I became the host of BT's Comic View, which was a stand-up show, but it put me on TV every day. Stand-up is just one of those things, people, you watch, you kind of understand what the rhythm is. You, you have to start small in stand-up. You can, you know, even if you're new, all you're gonna get is five minutes on stage anyway. Like, you're, you're not, you have to be extremely special right away for you to get more time. It's just the way the business is designed. Five minutes might not seem like that much time, but if you've ever actually gone to a stand-up show and it's a bad comic, five minutes is forever. Well, obviously, Cedric the Entertainer figured out how to do a great five minutes, and in fact, his famous moniker actually came from this time in the stand-up scene, not out of any sort of false bravado, simply because he just didn't have enough jokes to fill the headliner time slot he so desperately wanted. I don't know a lot of people know this story, but my name came because when I started doing stand-up, I got popular really quick. We just, I was kind of telling the story of how stand-ups get paid in time. So when you're a new guy, you what they call the MC, you do five to eight minutes, you get paid $300 to do eight shows, right? You get 300, then you move up to the middle 
and you do 25 to 30 minutes and you get paid 600 to 800 and then you become the headliner and as the headliner is a thousand to whatever you command once you're the last dude and so Early on, because I used to work, I worked at State Farms, I was a claims adjuster, I had a corporate job. When I started doing comedy, I wanted the money to equal what it was that I got paid. So I needed at least $600. So once I became known in St. Louis and people would want me to come do shows, I would tell them I can do 30 minutes. But I didn't, I only had five minutes worth of jokes. So I would sing, I would do poem, I play a record, I do a whole dance routine. I'm gonna fill up this 30 minutes. So what happened was a guy kept introducing comedians as the next comedian. He was like, and this next comedian coming up. And so he did that and me really paying reverence to comedians and loving them, I was like, don't call me a comedian because I don't have enough jokes. I said, call me an entertainer. So he said, this next guy's an entertainer, Cedric the Entertainer. And then I, I went up and I had a killer show. And when I got off, he said, Cedric the Entertainer, y'all. And I was like, that's the name. I just kept it. And that was it. The funny thing is, normally if someone just calls themselves an entertainer, you'd think, oh, they're just being ridiculous or they're overdoing it. But not him. Because he would do all these different things on stage because that's who he is. And that's actually his advice to others looking to do stand-up. Be true to yourself. Provided, of course, yourself can handle the fact that early stand-up gigs are not always going to go as planned. The real thing about stand-up is individuality, man. Like, I mean, it comes from the, the experiences that you have, the way that you see life, the way that you can word something and think about the phrase and, and really... Try to take that that spirit, that truth on stage. It's the best thing that works. Is the you know you can be funny, but people like people that they believe this happened to them, or the way that they tell the story. And you know you can get the angst of being um, on stage. So that's another thing. Breathe. You know, try to relax. You know, just try to relax into it. One, go from one joke to the next. Don't get too far ahead of yourself. When something doesn't go well, that's when you have to just kind of remain in the pocket. Just, you got a set in your head. You know, that would be my first note. Make sure you write a set. Like start with, this is my first joke. This is my second joke. This is gonna be my third joke. This is what I plan on ending with. If something happens in the middle, you know, something happens in the room, I could change, I might do that. But at least you have in your head what was going to be your plan of attack. And so if something throws you off, you can go like, all right, cool. Let me get back to what the things that I was going to say. But it's all about really kind of being true to yourself in the moment and trying to let that come out. And that's what people will enjoy the most. That's what you enjoy about all your favorite stand-ups is that they just uniquely them. you like, that's funny. That dude just, he just cracked me up because the way he see it. So for years, crowds loved watching Cedric and seeing how he reacted to the world. He did his time, and eventually, that got him noticed. Cedric, or I don't know, maybe I should call him Mr. The Entertainer, eventually got tagged to join the original Kings of Comedy tour. And that tour featured a TV personality, which then helped launch Cedric's acting career. Mr. Family Feud himself, Steve Harvey. He hails from St. Louis, Missouri. Put your hands together for my motherfucking friend, Cedric the Entertainer! What's up? 
a lot of them space movies out. White people like space movies. Black people don't really do space like that. White people love space movies. They love movies about the moon and Mars where they can be leaving our ass down here on Earth. <laughs> That's what they think. They think they're going to leave us down here on Earth. They're going to move to the moon. Ain't going to happen. Y'all move to the moon, damn it, we coming to the moon. Oh, we'll be right behind y'all in space shuttles with Cadillac grills, nigga. Just, nigga, just rolling one headlight out. Tags be all wrong. All base. My first real opportunity to play a character was on the Steve Harvey show. In my mind, it was just like a, two months ago or whatever. Yes. People be like, man, I was a baby. <laughs> you be like, thanks a lot. <laughs> I feel young, you know. But I do think that being with another stand-up, Steve was a good friend of mine. We were friends. Uh, we just came into the environment in a real comfortable way, and it made it easy to, to kind of transition from, you know, just being known as a stand-up to acting every day on a sitcom. I was with somebody that I, that I trusted. We were partners. We trusted each other. And the director, Stan Lathan, he did all the Def Comedy Jams. So he was with us, and then he directed every Steve Harvey show. So, again, I just kind of walked into a really good environment for you know, to be able to have a learning curve to, you know, if you if you do something wrong, they're like, hey man, you know, turn around. You can't say you're lying to the wall, you know. <laughs> like, you right, you right. Cedric's first experience in front of the camera was perfect for him. Working with Steve Harvey, working with a director he knew and appreciated. But he also admits that during the early part of his career, he did not really appreciate the magnitude of just what a director did and how important a great director was to the success of a project. One thing I had to learn that the director is also talent. Because when you're hired as an actor, you kind of believe that it's all about you, but you realize that a talented director is also talent. Like they're, they're there to do something very specific and they're trying to find something very specific so that it can be on the screen. It's kind of easy to put them on the technical side because they're behind the camera and, you know, you would see actors be very temperamental with directors. You don't, you don't know what I do, you know? I got, to, I got to get here. So, for the most part, I, I would say the best thing about a director is to really have a vision of what it is that they're trying to do and then have the uh, kind of, uh, it's this thing of, of being in charge in charge of the situation, but also knowing that you do have to let an actor find it. Like they have to, it's not automatic, but if you have a vision and a, and a direction, it's easy for you to, you know, hopefully, you know, some directors are not really good with actors. They just really great technical people. But, you know, it's to be able to explain to that actor what it is that you need. And that's usually the best relationship. You know, I've done movies where an actor just ran over the director and then you see the movie fall apart. Like, it's at that point that you start to go like, yo, you, you really have to know you the captain of the ship. And it's, it's a hard thing to do when you're dealing with egos of, like, big-time stars. But as that person that's shooting the film, that's got to get it on thing, you the captain. And you just got to take that, and, and that's going to be best. Fortunately, the captain for Barbershop was Tim Story, who was young but knew what he wanted and Barbershop turned out to be a significant turning point in Cedric's career. 
He had a chance to actually go after a more audience-friendly crowd-pleaser, one that would have made him probably a lot more money. But he went with the smaller, more personal role. Barbershop, at that time, it was interesting that they hadn't, they hadn't actually been uh, casting like these comedies about our culture, like right. very specific culture right. stuff. Uh, you know, and, and you know, usually it's some kind of family-based movie, but this was about something that was inside the culture that was very specific to what we, how we experienced going to the barbershop. It was interesting though, because at that time it was at MGM and uh, Like Mike was, was getting ready to be shot. And I, and I could have, I had the choice. So as an actor, they was like, oh, you want to do Like Mike, which is going to pay you more money. You're going to be in this big studio movie. And then it was Barbershop. And, you know, I just instinctively knew from being a stand-up that this particular movie was going to be better suited for what I wanted to do and what I, how I wanted to be in movies. And so I chose the lesser money for the greater film. That's what I would say. I think it's fair to say that Cedric the Entertainer chose wisely. Barbershop turned out to be a surprise hit, with its personal tales of an African-American corner barbershop resonating with people from all backgrounds. It's actually something I stress as a writing instructor. The more personal and more lived in your story is, ironically, the more universal it becomes. As unique as you may feel right now, your story will resonate with so many people. So try to find something that tells that story really cleanly. You'll be surprised that your audience will be a lot bigger for different reasons. I mean, a lot like, you know, the barbershop, which we thought was very specific to the black barbershop. Once we start telling the story, people go, oh, that's like my blase blah. So other cultures, the reason why the movie did well is that you have to figure out how do you cross over, but we didn't think about it like that. We were telling a very specific story and it crossed over because other cultures start going, oh, you know, their barbershop is like our, when we go to the, you know, the pizza shop or whatever we do, people recognize like this is where you get to be yourself. You can say whatever it is that you want to say. And so people started to identify with the movie from that. That's what I think as an artist, you have something that, you know, you feel like you want to say inside out. Trust that and believe that that message will lead you to even bigger, greater message. But start with the one that's pure in your heart and the one that you feel like you, you want to say. Say it. It's exactly why My Big Fat Greek Wedding is still one of the biggest comedies ever made. That story is so specific and so personal that everyone can relate to it. Cedric the Entertainer gets this, too, because... He was a stand-up comic for years, which is always about connecting with your audience, knowing your voice. So when he acts in a movie, he's always at the ready. He can improv, he can tell jokes, he can change lines, but he respects the screenplay. He doesn't mind cutting loose, but only if the director lets him. In movies, there's usually a flexibility. Of course, I start out doing the script. It's only when a director usually is saying, interpreted like in Barbershop, in Barbershop, because I was so uniquely had that character in my head, the director knew that I can do the words, and then he was like, all right, do the words, and then be Eddie. That's what he would just say. Like, he would go, do the script, because, you know, again, the studio paid for the script. The people who put the money up want this script. That's what they think they bought. And so you can't necessarily, you don't have the freedom to just freestyle unless they trust you. 
And so in that particular movie, the way I, you know, kind of crafted the character, uh, they just trusted what I wanted to do. And so I freestyle a lot. And then I did my version. One of the, in, in that movie was the big Rosa Park, Martin Luther King thing, right? What I'm saying is, is that black people need to stop lying. Say something. Mm -hmm. There's three things that black people need to tell the truth about. What? One, one, Rodney King should have yeah. got an ass beat for driving drunk and being grown in a Hyundai. Two, OJ did it. OJ did it. And three, Rosa Parks ain't do nothing but sit her black ass down. That's, oh, right. Your That's right, I said it. I said it. You know you wrong. Keep on walking. You wrong. You walking by yourself this time, fam. I ain't with you. I'll tell you one thing. You better not never let Jesse Jackson hear you talking about that. Man, Jesse Jackson. Oh. Oh. Super controversial. Like, I mean, even on the set, the producers, people was mad. People were walking away. I mean, it was like serious. Like, it was, it was a guy that like kind of worked to get me on the movie. Couldn't even believe I was going to say it. I said, it's in the script. But the way it was written in the script, it had a malice to it. So what I did was try to take what he was saying and then internalize it as Eddie so I could say the same thing, but not the same way. So that's what I did. So when the NAACP and... I mean, they came at me. They came at me. Like, I mean, like, like it's weird. Like, when people want to come, like, like Jesse Jackson called me in my house. And Rosa Parks' family sent me a letter, a scathing letter. I was like, whoa! I said, it's serious right here, boy. I am in trouble with the ancestors right now, man. Okay. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this, the ancestors. But I had created a truth in the character that I believe was his truth, Eddie, and that's what he was saying because that's what Eddie believed in the barbershop. So I had all of these things like, this is the barbershop, man. Like we, people say absurd things and then some people believe things to be true. But I don't disrespect the screenwriter. Like that's one of the reasons why you decide to do a project in the first place is that you gotta look at the writing and see if it's something you wanna be a part of. And that is how most actors make their choice because they're just paint. They're, they're the actor, they're there to, to make your word real. I had to learn that more so in my run on Broadway because as a comedian I became very used to freestyling and doing my own thing but when you do playwrights for sure you can't change nothing. Like screenwriters you get a little bit more leeway but playwrights uh-uh. No words, no change, no extra, none of that. And I was surprised because I thought I, they were hiring me to, to do me. Like, and they was like, no, 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 you doing this. <laughs> all right. Barbershop did help show the range of Cedric the Entertainer's talents. He could have treated the role like a, a series of jokes, and I'm sure it would have been funny. But he did more than that. He went deeper with it, and he came at it not just as a comic, but really as an actor. For a comedian, once you start acting, you get the drive to be considered serious. I don't, you know, it's something that just happens naturally once people start putting you in movies, and then all of a sudden you had this desire for, for people to go like, you know, you really can act, you know, you need that. Uh, and so it, it usually comes with dramas. Even then, you know, I thought about Bridesmaids or Hangover. None of the great comedies coming to America, they ever get nominated or the actors get recognized 
for what they did. And these are big movies and they came into your life in a big way. And you go like, well, why The Hangover wasn't nominated? Why wasn't Bridesmaids nominated? The funniest movie this year, dope. They was comedians. And so you go like, well, I want an award. You know, I don't, you know. <laughs> You know, that's cool, that comedy thing, cool. But you know, I got a tux, so I'm trying to. But to those opportunities, we look for them. You know, I try to look for them. And I, I mainly look for small roles that I get to be with really great actors. And so I try to look for those things. In this particular movie, Barbershop, this was one of my favorite stories about myself, if I feel. The movie it was was already being shot in uh when I first got cast, they didn't know that I wanted to be the old man. Everybody thought I was supposed to do Anthony's part. Everybody was lined up and I was like, no, no, I'm the old man. They was like, you the old man? I was like, yeah, I'm the old man. Like I had a whole vision, which I did. Like, you know, like I had a whole idea of who this guy was, and including the hairstyle. Like I, I braided my hair, I grew my hair all summer so I could, cause I wanted to look like Frederick Douglass. Like I had a whole thing. <laughs> It was like I was locked in to this dude, right? But the first day of my shooting was the scene outside when Calvin tells me that he sold the shop. Your daddy may not have had a whole lot of money, oh, but he was rich because he invested in people. Well, what you think? You think I'm the only one he gave a job to, Calvin? No. That man opened up the doors to anybody in any knucklehead around here in the city of Chicago that wanted to come down here and make something out themselves. Gave him an opportunity to be somebody. A licensed professional barber. For me to come into a comedy and then to deliver the most, one of the most dramatic scenes in the movie was, was something I was uniquely proud of because a lot of the, the crew came up to me after and was like, yo! Like, we didn't even know what this movie was about until you did that right there. <laughs> you know, like, they was like, cause it was the robbery, it was the bank, you know? So they had no idea what the movie was about until that scene when people were shooting it and saw like how emotional I was about it and, and I got mad and it was like, yo, so to be able to pull that off on your first major movie and your first day of shooting, was something I was really proud of and you know that I that's why I asked you to watch that movie mainly for me you know what I mean but but it's a good movie but I just love the you know the performance I gave throughout that movie he has a right to be proud his performance is great even if the movie didn't rack up any awards it launched a small franchise and showed that Mr. the Entertainer could do a lot more than just tell jokes one of the best scenes in the whole film in fact is this little fight breaks out in the barbershop So his character immediately grabs a blade. He's ready to use it. Cut me somebody up in here. Except the fight's already over. It's the kind of small comedic gem that really can't be taught. But it can be learned after spending so much time on the stand-up stage. You know, for me, stand-up is definitely my way in. It's the thing that I like to do. I feel like I like to do it naturally. So I still tour now. Like, I got the new show, The Neighborhood, on, on CBS. And, uh, and and it's great. But it allows me to still go out on the road. I like the, what I call the immediacy of stand-up. It's the only place for an um, artist like myself to have 
content not edited or produced, you know? So, you know, with television and film, it's several people that have opinions that's gonna happen in your project along the way. It's, you know, it's very few writer-directors that can, very few, probably Tyler Perry, I guess, is the only one that's like, I can do everything myself, I don't need your opinion, you know what I mean? But most big directors and writers or whatever, it's other people that are gonna have opinions, gonna have to be able to interject, stand up as one, it's just you, you, the audience, the microphone, and you just go and you make it happen. So I still love that, but it is what I consider a young man's sport. You do learn to be a veteran at it and be kind of where you, you know, you ain't got to dunk all the time, but it is a young man's sport because you got to travel to do it. You got to be out on the road. You got to go to other places. There's just no way to be, you know, great stand up and just do it all the time, you know? So I think that acting becomes equivalent to, but stand-up is definitely that first love because it's the freest that I get to be being me. Like, I could just do it whenever I feel like doing it. The stand-up stage is like the ultimate freedom for a performance. It's you, a microphone, and a red light that tells you when your time is up. It's a little bit different than what he experienced in Hollywood. Even as his career got bigger and his roles got huge, his creative input stayed small. This idea of being hot and not being hot, right? So I did a movie, Codename the Cleaner, and then I did The Honeymooners. And both of these movies were movies that I executive produced on, but I did them for money. And this was one of these choices where they'd given me directors that were in like a pooling system, but I had directors in my mind that I thought would be better for the projects, and I didn't fight for them because they were threatening to take away my money. So after doing both of the movies and they, they come out with not being the box office success, then I'm no longer a person that can walk in the room and get a green light. Like before then, they were like, oh, say it coming in, you get a meeting. If they want to do the movie, they'll green light it. I get this big check. You know, it was power. Like, and so once that went away, it was those moments where you go, like, I didn't trust my instinct. I made the money, but I didn't trust that thing that I believe in. And then you felt like you constantly fighting to get that back. I would say even to this day, I still, even though I do a lot of movies and I got a lot of projects, I still haven't got gotten that cachet back that was that particular apex of both power, Hollywood wanting you, and recognizing what to do with it. Like, you know what I mean? And so when you kind of feel like you sliding down and you fighting to get up, that's one of those kind of weird moments where it's rough because you've already tasted success. And so you do have to have a centeredness and a, you know, a kind of a faith to just work. Just kind of believe in work, just believe in doing it, getting back up on the bike, going again, and not worrying about that. Like, you know, you just can't worry about, you know, how high it's going to get or how low it's going to get. Just, if you love it, just do it. Though when the paychecks are Ice Age and Madagascar-sized, he doesn't mind the work so much. You know, in your mind, when you watch animation, for the viewer, you feel like it's all, you look at it in the same way you look at a movie, as a movie, so you actually believe everybody that to, there together and doing all this, and so I was quite surprised. Is it surprised. together, or is it just, is just, just you? you alone? You in the booth, the writer, the producers, 
someone over in Japan on a machine. <laughs> Every now and then you just get somebody to chime in, Cedric, you know, huh? <laughs> You know, they give you like weird directions. Exasperate it, if you will, when you say the word. <laughs> Got it. But it, it's different because what I would do is kind of go back into your days as a kid when you, when you playing with your toys in the room and you giving everybody voices and you got your army men and you, you know, you using your skateboard as a ship, you know, like it's just the whole thing. And so that's what I try to do when I do animation because you're not really with anybody. You have to think about, and they give you the line, they give you the line several times because, you know, uh, they can voice without really knowing what the drawing is gonna be. So they may have, you know, like usually the director may have things in his head. So he's like, you might be jumping off of, of, a, of a building. And so give me one where you're like, ah, and then, and then I, but I might have y'all running. So then I want you to breathe with it. And so you just kind of like, you gotta be willing to kind of go in and out. And you know, it's, it feels a little silly at times because it's just you making it up and they have a video camera on you. And, and that's what they use for, you know, like, uh, post stuff and then you see yourself doing stupid ah, ah, ah. <laughs> you like the homies can't never see this ah, <laughs> you're in a room by yourself like looking stupid than a bug but but you know I tell you what when you get a Madagascar check everything every all of it goes out the window <laughs> Super sharp memory on the Madagascar checks. <laughs> May we all be so lucky to get a Madagascar-sized check. I'm sure there's a lot of zeros. So Cedric the Entertainer seen firsthand that a career in Hollywood is really not a straight line. His time on stage night after night got him ready for the plethora of no's that one gets in the film and TV industry. It is a tough one, especially, again, probably I would say for... Um, my particular path because it always went so smoothly. So I wasn't rejected, you know, early. I had success. I had what I considered a pedigree. I had these things that I thought, you know, all answers should be yes. Like, it, you know, I went from a stand-up to hosting a, a stand-up TV show, Comic View, on BT that made me a household name because back then Comic View used to come on every night. You know, BT was the premier go-to black channel. Like at that time, it was it was like, this is where black people went to watch TV. You know what I mean? And especially for something like that, it was stand-up. So I became a household name and really famous without the industry. I used to do a joke about that. Like I was hood rich, hood famous. Like I can go anywhere black, walk in, people know who I am. I'm making a lot of money because I'm out on the road making a lot of money. I'll go into a meeting out here and they'll be like, Cecil the Interrogator. You know, they have no idea who I am. Yeah, we heard of you, Courtney the Instigator. You're great, you know. We love you. We love what you do. And it was one of those moments where you realize that you are in this, this parallel universe where it's things going on, like, way up here, way above your pay scale. And so when somebody tells you no in that environment, it's bruising, man. It bruises. Like, so, but... You know, I, I, like I say, you know, with stand-up probably is another thing because every joke doesn't always work. Stand-up is very subjective. So some people love a certain comedian. Some people go, that dude ain't really that funny to me. 
So you can go into any room at any time and have a group of people not really feel you. And you have to learn that rejection. I, I took that rejection over to the movie business. So after a while, it's just like, all right, cool. That particular person didn't get me. I'm going to move on to the next one because that doesn't mean everybody doesn't get me. I mean, I can't imagine anyone not liking Cedric the Entertainer, but it happens. Sometimes you're not the right guy. And he gets that, but it doesn't bother him. So that means that even now, after all his success, when really he should never have to audition again, sometimes he still does try out. But if it means he gets to work with the right people, he'll park his ego at the door and do it. Probably the audition that most stands out to me, and it was not too long ago, the movie Why Him, with Brian Cranston and James Franco. And uh, it was one of these movies where um, a lot of people were going out for the role, and it was this thing like, well, they wanted to make me feel special, but you really realized that you were auditioning? Like, it was this whole thing, y'all are learning this language. You know, the director wants to take a meeting with Cedric, you know, and then you show up and there's 15 other actors there. You're like, this is an audition, man. <laughs> damn. Yeah, this ain't no damn meeting, man. You know? Like, I, I see my friends and stuff there. I'm like, oh, man, I'm auditioning right now. But knowing that, you know, again, I guess, you know, for me, after being in other movies, after having some success, the fact that I wanted to be in a movie with Brian Cranston, I wanted to be in a movie with James Franco, um, um, the, the director, uh, John Hamburg, like big director that did. These choices made me take the ego out of it. Like I, so, you know, that was the thing that I kind of remembered about the moment. I didn't, I decided not to be famous and do a famous thing. Like, you know, I just went in and auditioned. And I got the role for that reason, but I felt like that attitude led me to being creative in the moment, being, you know, taking the character and doing a little something different than what, mainly because I thought I was having a meeting. So, so, so I wasn't really prepared to audition. So I just kind of like took the words and did my own thing with it. And that's what the director would, you know, ultimately wanted. So that was, and I remember that as a moment for me that I thought the blessing of having the right attitude at the right time, and then being able to just kind of adapt with the circumstance was something I, I would consider like a blessing to have been in that spot as opposed to thinking the other way about it. That might not work for everyone, treating an audition like it's not an audition. But, well, it worked for him. He got the part. Though, to be honest, right now, we might not be seeing him in as many movies moving forward because he's really fallen in love with working in television. Right now, like, I'm really loving the television space. I'd still want to continue to do movies. You know, we got a couple of uh, more dramatic-type movies. But now it's about producing other shows, shows for other people, you know, really kind of finding writers in the next phase. What's really interesting about coming to a school in an environment like this is because it won't be a surprise at all that in, you know, five years, one of y'all gonna come up to me like, yo, man, you spoke at my school, I was there that night, you know? And you be like, yo, and this is where, really how relationships are formed and made, and you just be surprised by that. And, and I throw that out there as positive energy, knowing that you guys are, you're next. There's always somebody next. There's always somebody that's coming into this game that's gonna be next. You can't stop it, you know? So no matter how hot you are, how big you are, you can be Brad Pitt, 
super sexy man alive. Here come Ryan Gosling. It's just the way it go. Like, you don't get to be hot forever. You, know, you can ride your hot forever, but I mean, that it guy is somebody going to be that. And producers and creators and talented people that y'all coming next. And, you know, so it's just important to be able to be in the energy. So that's what I try to throw out there. And then part of being in this energy that he's describing means you can't get too caught up in the chaos of this industry. It's easier said than done, but you got to find a way to stay grounded. I've always surrounded myself by a small team. I'm a, I'm a person that loves big, but I don't really have a lot of big entourage. Like, I'll deliver, I perform as your uncle, your cousin. People feel like they know me. Like, like I've definitely had people walk up to me like, hey, say it, man, just in, like, talking. I'll be like, bro, like... <laughs> like <laughs> like, I don't know, like, when you're here, when you had this other conversation with me, but I don't know you like that, you know? But I, I do think that, you know, to the core of your question is really just trying to remain uh, true to, to the work that I do, make sure that I'm focused on doing a good job, that I don't take the checks for granted, I don't take the opportunities for granted. So that's why I'm prayerful and why we gather and try to bring that synergy whenever we're doing a project where people be all in one accord because what you realize is that it takes everybody to get the job done. You know, I gave the example, you can be funny on camera, but if the cameraman is just off by a little bit, they miss the whole joke. And you'd be like, oh, I killed it, you missed it. You like, so you actually need everybody to be doing their job at the highest of your ability. So you try to motivate that and so that everybody cares about what it is that they're to do. And you guys will know this as you do work, you get in posts and you're like, I ain't got the shot. I thought I had the shot. If you don't have the shot, the money gone, you can't go back, the actor's gone, moved on to the ne next project, you can't get it all over again. So that's why it's so important to always keep a positive energy when people are working around you and they're not positive. Those are hard days when you're trying to be a good person, but when it's time to move on, it's time to move on, man. You gotta be true about what it is that you're doing. And you know, I just try to take that spirit into everything that I do. And part of knowing when to move on is to realize that you're not going to only have one great idea. You, you, you're going to have a lot of them. Because if you put all your time and energy into one idea, well, unfortunately, that might become your last idea. To all of you guys, never think that this idea is your last idea. A lot of times people start to hang their hat on one thing, and if you don't get that one done, you count yourself as a failure. Just. Just know, man, that ain't it. You can do 20 of these. Like, you start believing in that direction, then you can handle rejection. You can handle the no's, but you have to believe that one idea, one somebody saying no, is not going to stop you. So I got a new idea. Because so, like with any idea, unfortunately, as much as you think it's so unique, when you get out into the bigger Hollywood, You'll be surprised when people are like, you know, we're actually already developing something along those lines. And you'd be like, what? That's my greatest idea. And they'd be like, uh, I'm sorry. And then, you know, you, you hadn't seen many people. They stole my idea. you like, they couldn't have stole your idea. You just thought of it. They already produced it, right? That mean that they thought of that two years ago because it, it don't happen that fast. If it's on now, that means somebody had this already two years ago for it to actually be on. So that's when you know, like, your idea was not as unique as you thought it was. But again, it doesn't prevent you from being creative and finish it. Finish it. That, that exercise is going to make you stronger. 
you'd be smart to listen to advice from a man who really has earned the title, The Entertainer. By the way, if you want to see Cedric perform in a remarkably dramatic role, check out First Reform with Ethan Hawke. It's on Amazon Prime right now. He's terrific at it, and maybe he'll actually be at the award show in his fancy wear sooner than later. We want to say thanks to Cedric the Entertainer for sharing his story with our students, and of course, thanks to all of you for listening. This episode was based on the Q&A, moderated by Tova Leiter and Amari Agee. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by Toba Leiter, John Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to our events department, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time.